Uh, our pastor Austin is on the Oklahoma-Texas border. I think like on the border. That's how he described it. Um, he's, uh, he's preaching at a family camp for a church. And uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if he comes back with a picture of a five-point buck. Um, it's kind of like him. Uh, my name is Matt. For those of you who have not gotten a chance to meet yet, my wife and I have the joy of serving on staff here at GOC. Uh, we are, we're both Bruins, true Bruins. Uh, we graduated a while back, um, but we've fallen in love with our church, with Grace Church, and with, with what this ministry is doing on campus. So it's a joy to serve alongside all you guys here on campus. Um, if you're new, I just want to welcome you. Uh, maybe it's your first week or your second week. Uh, thank you for coming to join us at Grace on Campus here on a Friday night. Um, it's really, really great to have you guys. Um, before I start tonight, before we look into God's Word, I, I, I kind of wanted to address an elephant in the room for some of you guys who are new. Um, it's not something we get to talk about a lot, but it's uh, something that I think that's helpful for you if you're new to think through. Um, you might have noticed from coming on Fridays or, or coming on Sundays that uh, we, we do a lot of preaching. We do a lot of, of teaching from God's Word. Um, we do a lot of sermons. Um, we have a seminary in the parking lot of our, of our church dedicated to even training men how to do that, how to preach sermons. Um, we call it in our world, we call it expository preaching is, is what we, we call it. Um, all that really means, it's a big word for, for saying we take the meaning out of the text of God's word, uh, out of the text of scripture. We're, we're expounding on that, explaining what that text means. So we're not looking to add meaning to it. We're not looking to explain what the text means to me uh, or to you. We're, we're trying to see what would God have to say from his word every, every time we look at uh, God's word. He usually has something to say about himself. He usually has something to say about us, our responsibility. He usually has something to say about maybe a principle that we can hang our hats on. So admittedly at times it can be a little bit dense, a little bit full of information, the way that we preach, the way that we have sermons. Um, so I want to encourage you, if you're new, to just hang in there. Trust that your appetite for this kind of teaching will grow. Um, and you'll learn eventually how to engage this kind of preaching and listen and apply, okay? Um, when I first came to Grace Church, I didn't know what coffee was. So it took me an entire year, like I kid you not, a year before I could stay awake in first service. Like our own beloved Pastor John. Um, I think he spent like 18 weeks in like John 11 or something. And it was like amazing, but I always fell asleep by minute 35, right? So um, just to encourage you, hang in there, pay as close attention as you can when we open God's word. Get like one or two big things from what we're trying to say out of God's word. And I think you'll really start to enjoy these times as we uh, look into God's word together. Okay? So I just wanted to sort of address that and, and help you understand this is what we do when we meet, is that we look into God's word and we explain it, we exposit it, we expound on what God would have to say for us. Okay? Um, turn to Genesis 12. We're going to continue in our series on the, on the faith of Abraham. Genesis 12. We began our series last week, Austin did, looking at chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. And that was Yahweh's calling of Abraham. He gave him a four-part promise, if you remember, right? People, 
a place, protection, and then a program, a universe program, a kingdom program. You see, Yahweh didn't call Abram because he was godly or worthy or deserving, but because Yahweh set his love on Abram, he called him. And Austin brought us through that text last week and showed us when Yahweh calls an individual to himself, there can be cosmic significance. There can be massive impact. And so we ought to think of our own lives and God's call on our lives in the same way. So Abram's been called by Yahweh to leave the land of his father and go out of the land of Haran. And Abraham goes to this promised land, a kind of dusty and unimpressive place. And it's inhabited by other people, by Canaanites, by nomadic peoples, pseudo-civilizations. But here Abram is, and he pitches his tent, and he builds an altar to Yahweh. In verse 8, look at verse 8, it says, He calls upon the name of Yahweh. He begins to testify of the Lord, to proclaim of God's grace in calling him. Yahweh, promise maker and promise keeper. Yahweh who was and is and is to come. Yahweh, the blesser and the protector of his chosen ones. And then in verse 9, we see that Abram continues to move south toward the Negev, this dry, arid region of desert. And this is where we find Abram in our text tonight. So we'll be in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10 through chapter 13, verse 4. Now listen as I read our text tonight. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for this famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me, because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But Yahweh afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar to he had made an altar at the first and there 
Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Old faithful, the aptly named natural geyser was discovered in 1870 in the area that is now known as Yellowstone National Park. Heat, water, underground rock that is hard enough to withstand pressure. This sort of system creates pressure that causes these formations to erupt. Now, compared to other geysers, Old Faithful is considered to be a highly predictable geothermal feature. Over a million eruptions have been recorded, tracked, measured since it was discovered. Old Faithful erupts every 35 to 120 minutes for the length of about a minute and a half to five minutes. And its maximum height ranges from 90 to 184 feet. Old Faithful erupts on an average of 23 times a day. So Old Faithful is a highly predictable geothermal feature on a, on a human, on a scientific level. It's also relatively unreliable. If you think about the numbers, it's unstable in a way. It's also an unexpected thrill every time it erupts. People come from all over the world to see Old Faithful. Tonight in our text, we see that God, creator of all things, of Old Faithful, of a thousand other geysers, of man and beast and everything in this world is absolutely and always faithful. And yet from a human perspective, we will see that Yahweh is faithfully kind and faithfully powerful and faithfully generous in a way that from a human perspective is unexpected and unwarranted and unmatched. Tonight we'll see from Abram's life that when we are faithless, Yahweh is ever faithful. When we take Yahweh's promises for granted, Yahweh still makes good on his promises because it is Yahweh and is, these are his promises. When we plot our own way through life's circumstances, thinking we know God's will, it is only God's wisdom and care and power that accomplishes his will. Against the backdrop of, of our ingenuity, our creativity, and even in this text, our own foolishness and our own sin, Yahweh is, is steadfast, Yahweh is faithful, and Yahweh is true. We'll see in our text tonight, for those who are his, even when we are faithless, Yahweh is ever faithful. We'll look at this text in three scenes tonight. Three scenes. The first is Abram's plot. Abram's plot. Scene one. There's a famine in the land, and it's not an uncommon occurrence in this dry region of the world. Negev literally means dry in Hebrew. And the end of verse 10 tells us the famine was severe in the land. 
Now, we don't know how much time has, has passed since chapter 12, 1 through 9, um, last week's text, since Yahweh's promises to Abram and Yahweh's call for him to go. But it seems to us, at least from reading this, that Abram has just entered the land that Yahweh promised, right? And now here he is already having to leave because he needs to go get food. Imagine, imagine Abram's disappointment. He, he had not possessed even an inch of promised land before he had to go and leave and find food. Here's Abram saying, I need food to live and I, I need to live in order to inherit, inherit God's promises. And so while it may be easy to criticize Abram on the, on the front end for leaving the promised land, it's, it's a practical necessity here for him to go. Egypt was the breadbasket of the ancient world, mainly because of the Nile. Now, you don't have to be an ancient Near East expert to know that the Nile was crucial to Egypt's power and prestige in that land. Because of the pulsing floods of that great river, Egypt had crops. They had lots and lots of crops, mainly grain crops, so could say Egypt was the capital of gluten. Just saying. And so Abram journeys southwest to Egypt from the Negev. And as he's about to enter Egypt, he gets to thinking. Look at verse 11 again. He says to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me and they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. It's a really interesting way to say I love you. Sarah, even at the age of 65, she would live to be 127, is sort of middle age, and she's a beautiful woman. So out of fear, Abram devises a plan. He, he plots. He knows his wife, Sarah, is beautiful. He's seen and heard in his nomadic existence in the land tales of jealousy and murder and, and wife stealing. And Egypt in particular is a powerful, developed civilization. Its men are known to have a particular liking for women from other regions like Sarah. And all of this is a situation so insurmountable to Abram that he fearfully fashions his plan. He says, I need food. They're going to need my wife. Sarai, tell them you're my sister. Now turn to chapter 20, verse 12, and we'll look at very briefly another fact that will help us understand this. We're going to pretend like we don't look at this because a very similar instance to the events of tonight's text will happen again in Abram's life in chapter 20. But that account helps us to understand a little bit more of the situation here. Chapter 20, look at verse 12. This is Abram speaking. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Back to chapter 12. So we know from chapter 20, verse 12, that Abram and Sarah are actually half-brother and half-sister, right? It's 
It's somewhat common, somewhat common, ancient Near Eastern experts say that this was seen kind of as a positive thing, actually. So it's that men who married someone that wasn't related to them would often adopt their wives as their sister. So actually what Abram is saying and wants to portray through Sarai is true, in part. But it's intended to deceive the Egyptians, to give a false impression of the truth. So it's a lie. Look at verses 14 and 15. What Abram predicted would happen is exactly what happens, but to an extreme. It says, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all of Egypt, is the one out of all the Egyptians to finally get a hold of Sarai. Imagine Abram as he realizes what he's gotten into. And all of this without a fight, because Sarai follows along with Abram's plan. And so she is brought to Pharaoh's harem. And in fact, out of respect to the brother of this beautiful woman, and because Pharaoh can, and of course, because it shows his wealth and his power, Pharaoh pays a large bride price. Look at verse 16. And for her sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. The commentaries love, love examining the the order of this list. And they talk about how it's in order of value or in order of quantity. And they also, the other thing that's really interesting, they also love to talk about the fact that there's not horses in this list. I mean, it, the commentaries are on it. But the point here is Pharaoh gives Abram a lot of stuff. I mean, Sarah was probably, as the text says, very beautiful. But here Abram is. 350 miles away from the land that God promised him. And he's lost his wife. He has sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels, but he's lost Sarah, his beloved. Abram's quest for food and his plot for his own self-preservation have left him without his bride without the very woman through whom Yahweh had promised him would come a great nation earlier in this chapter. What have you done, Abram? What have you done to Yahweh's promise now? Now, this is not the passage to draw lessons for marriage, but Abram, really? I mean, you could have thrown horses into the mix and you shouldn't have done it still. This whole predicament, through and through, is brought about by Abram's plotting and planning for what he thinks is best. Abram, Yahweh's chosen one, shows no trust in Yahweh. He is devoid of the faith in Yahweh he had just earlier in this chapter. Instead of having faith in the creator of the universe to provide food for him, Abram leaves the land that Yahweh promised him to go get food. 
Instead of having faith in Yahweh, the protector, the one who promised him, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. He comes up up with his own twisted plan to save his bacon. Abram, full of faith and and fervor as he followed Yahweh's call earlier in this chapter to go, to leave Haran. This Abram that we thought we knew, he's gone. There goes your picture-perfect patriarch. Instead, we have an Abram full of fear and, and failure and unfaith. You and I are, are not unlike Abram. If you have been called by God, you are his. And when you are his, you are called in each season of life into a new arena of faith testing and trials and challenges that will prove you either humbly dependent on your heavenly father, understanding the heart of a man plans his way, but Yahweh establishes his steps, or these tests, these trials, and these challenges will prove you to be arrogantly independent of God, plotting your own course on your own timeline, thinking that you are somehow one step ahead of the God of the universe. Like Abram's path here, there is a self-appointed expert, self-reliant, compartmentalizing, and Yahweh-forsaking way of being a wannabe follower of God. And it is a most dangerous path forward in this life because you forfeit, you forfeit the wisdom and the guidance and the love of an ever faithful God if you live this way. It's what the New Testament calls life in the spirit or life abiding in Christ. And the Bible is crystal clear. You cannot snatch the benefit of God's call and then stiff arm your father's faithful authority and guidance in your life. But you still try to block them out, don't you? This is, I know, a a room full of people who got here. You got to UCLA because you had it all figured out. At least at the end of high school. And so faith in God not just as he calls you savingly so to himself, but faith in God as you are to follow him and continually submit to him. Faith in God as you are to walk and live by faith may be one of the more difficult yet more pertinent spiritual lessons you will learn in this season as a college student. And so I urge you tonight, learn to follow Yahweh in faith. Learn to trust him in faith. Learn to wait on him in faith. Learn to obey him in faith. It's impossible to critique Abram for his actions and pin down exactly where he went wrong in this passage. But it's clear from all his twisted plotting that this great patriarch has lost his way in his journey of faith. So scene one is a, it's a cautionary tale for those who have followed God's call in faith. 
for us to continue in faith and see Yahweh true for all his goodness and all his promises. Scene one, that's Abram's plot, a sad tale. Scene two brings hope. It's Yahweh's protection, Yahweh's protection. Look at verse 17. But Yahweh afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Out of nowhere, Yahweh arrives on the scene. And if you didn't notice, there has been no mention of him so far in our text. This story is so far all about Abram. Now, what do you expect here? After all the trouble Abram has gotten himself into, what would be fair? What should happen? What should a just God do? What should Yahweh do? We would expect Yahweh to strike Abram down or to abandon him or give up on him or choose somebody else or allow Pharaoh to have his way with Abram. But Yahweh demonstrates his incredible mercy upon Abram that his faithfulness and his power might be demonstrated in this passage. And this is what we see over and over and over again, even just 12 chapters into Genesis. Adam and Eve sin against Yahweh, and we expect God to hit the reset button, but instead Yahweh graciously provides for them and then sends them out of Eden. Cain kills Abel, and we expect Yahweh to destroy Cain in retribution, but Yahweh puts a mark to protect Cain. Yahweh sees the wickedness of man is great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually, and we expect Yahweh to completely wipe out mankind, but Yahweh graciously preserves Noah and covenants with him to never destroy the earth again in this way. And he tells him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Disperse, he says. Mankind after the flood comes together in defiance to Yahweh and builds a tower. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And what does Yahweh do? He spares them and he confuses their language and graciously disperses them over the earth like he had originally commanded. Sin and failure met with unwarranted mercy. Evil met with unmatched kindness, all because Yahweh is faithful and merciful. And so here we are with Yahweh's chosen man, Abram. He's, he's traded his wife away for the showcase showdown. And we expect Yahweh to hand him over to Pharaoh or give up on him. But instead, Yahweh shows up in a big way. He completely bails out wifeless, faithless Abram. Yahweh sends great plagues, the text says, to afflict Pharaoh and his house. We don't even know what kind of plagues they are. They could be like the ones in Exodus. But that doesn't even matter. 
What matters is that Yahweh, all-powerful, mighty warrior, shows here what he will do over and over again for his chosen people, Israel. He will fight their battles and deliver them from the hand of their enemies. He will send plague and famine and sickness upon those who oppose his holy nation. All because he promised Abram in 12 verse 3. Look there, 12 verse 3. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And so this is but a foretaste of the storied history of Yahweh's faithful protection of his people. And in this instance, in this text, he faithfully protects their patriarch, Abram. Look at verses 18 and 19. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Now the passage, the text doesn't tell us how, but whether because of the timing of the plagues or maybe because Sarai finally reveals her real relationship to Abram, Pharaoh has found Abram out. And look, Pharaoh gets it. He knows there's something supernatural about what has happened with these great plagues. These plagues are not the work of the coward right in front of him. They are the work of one far greater than this foreigner, Abram. And we see in this text, it is the work of Yahweh himself. This is really a core truth of this passage that only Yahweh can bring about his promise. Man's best efforts, his craftiest plots, the most spreadsheeted out planning, even the most influential, the most intentional, the most manipulative of politicians, the most genius, or even the most godly of men cannot bring about Yahweh's plan, promises, or will. Only Yahweh himself can bring about his promise. Only he can accomplish it. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he will. Here in this text, the amazing thing though, is that we see from Abram's situation, man's failure and faithlessness also cannot stand in the way of Yahweh's promise. When Yahweh's mercy and favor is set on his own, Yahweh will accomplish what he has promised. So it's not that you can do whatever you want without consequence. Don't test God. But it's that Yahweh is faithful. And so what he says he will do, he does. And what he sets out to do will happen. Grace on campus, the best of man and the worst of man will not turn the tide on Yahweh. Yahweh is faithful. He's faithful to his promises. It is Yahweh through whatever man 
or molecule in his universe he deems fit who will accomplish all that he himself has promised. This is the power of the creator and the sustainer of all things who will patiently and powerfully ordain the intricacies of your life to demonstrate his mercy to those who are created to bear his image and bring him glory. How fitting is it here then that Abram is silent? He doesn't even get a word in. He shouldn't get to. He doesn't have to. There's nothing to explain. The the foolishness of his lack of faith garners no further reasoning or explanation. But here we also see the irony is that Yahweh uses the tongue of the pagan Pharaoh to rebuke his chosen man. Now look at verse 20. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. With that, Abram is ushered out. He's sent away from Egypt. Here in scene two, we see Yahweh's faithful protection of Abram. And so even through Abram's unfaith, even though that should have meant certain destruction or at least an abort mission, Yahweh is faithful to his promise to Abram. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Despite Abram's faithlessness, Yahweh is faithful Let's look at scene three. Yahweh's provision. Yahweh's provision. Look at chapter 13, verses one through four. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh. So Abram moves on from Egypt, back through the Negev, and to the place where he had pitched his tent before, where he was in the beginning of this passage. And while this kind of movement is nothing out of the ordinary for a nomad like Abram, This is a significant trip for Yahweh's chosen man. All we see is modern day people living in the United States is geography. But what we must see here is Abram's return to the land that Yahweh promised him. It signifies a return to the course of faith set out by Yahweh, the promise maker. Notice here that what's different about Abram's circumstances Look at the end of verse 20, actually. It's a detail we kind of skipped over on purpose. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Probably because Pharaoh was too proud a man to take anything back. 
Abram got to keep everything Pharaoh gave him in exchange for Sarai. Look at verse 2 of chapter 13. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Now, if you remember our list of gifts in chapter 12 from Pharaoh earlier, silver and gold are not on that list. And so Yahweh is blessing and enriching Abram along the way, growing his wealth and his influence in the land, providing for his every need, blessing him and making his name great in the way that he had promised him. And so here in scene three, we see Yahweh's abundant provision for Abram. In scene two, we saw that Yahweh repaid Abram's faithlessness with sovereign protection. And here in scene three, we see that Abram, what Abram lacked in faith, Yahweh repays abundantly in blessing. The mercy of God, the grace of God against the backdrop of Abram's lack of faith is so unexpected and unwarranted. Abram is so pitifully undeserving of such rich blessing, but Yahweh is a faithful provider. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he is a generous king. Yahweh is a loving and caring father who gives to his children who ask. All of Yahweh's blessing, all of it, material, situational, spiritual, it all comes unequivocally from his hands. And here with Abram, there is no doubt. These are not the spoils of Abram's plot against Egypt. This is all the hand of Yahweh. And so we, we should not be hesitant to acknowledge that every blessing of every kind in our lives is from His hand. Whether it be spiritual or physical or situational, it is all from the hand of Yahweh. Now for Abram, Yahweh promised a land, a people, protection, and then multiplied blessing through this kingdom program. For you, Christian, in Christ, he has promised you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. He has promised you that he will neither leave you nor forsake you. He has promised you to not let you be tempted beyond what you are able. He has promised you that if you lack wisdom, he has promised to give wisdom to those who ask. He has blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And at the core of all of it, God has promised if we confess our Sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you know Jesus Christ savingly tonight, these are the promises in his word that God will be faithful to. And you can live life under God's protection and provision of these promises, saved and secure under the watch of an ever-faithful God. Grace on campus, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, 
for he who promised is faithful. And if you don't know Christ tonight, these promises that I just read, they're not for you. And you live life insecure and with with great unknown because you are not known by the God of the universe. He created you in his image. You were meant to know him and, and enjoy him and live your life for him. But you are a sinner by nature and by choice. You have spoken lies and acted unjustly. and You've had murderous thoughts against other people. And in hundreds of other ways, you have offended a righteous God. And because of your sin, you have no access to him. You cannot know him or enjoy him or live life under his faithful reign. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life, to die at the hands of sinful men. And then he raised Jesus from the grave in victory over sin and death. And so you can be forgiven tonight of your sins against God because of what Jesus accomplished. It is the same God who was faithful in his promises to Abram, who is faithful to us in this day in all his promises to us in Christ Jesus. And so if you don't know him, you have that opportunity tonight to turn to Jesus. I I beg you to talk to me, talk to somebody around you about how you can know this Jesus. We find Abram again here in the heart of the land that God has promised him. He's calling upon the name of Yahweh. He's proclaiming publicly the mighty deeds of God. He's testifying of the faithfulness of Yahweh to his promises. It was in this place between Bethel and Ai that he had decided to leave and go find food. Here it was in this place that he devised his plot to deceive the Egyptians. Here it was in this place that he lapsed from faithfully following Yahweh for his promises. And now back in the same place between Bethel and Ai, what does he have to show for it? He has Sarai, his beloved, by his side. He has sheep and oxen and male donkeys and and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. He has silver and gold, but outweighing all of these blessings Abram, Yahweh's chosen man, has an incredible testimony of Yahweh's faithfulness. And so here he is at the place where he made an altar at the first, testifying of Yahweh's faithfulness despite his own faithlessness, testifying of Yahweh's sovereign protection against his enemies, the Egyptians, testifying of Yahweh's abundant provision in blessing him and making his name great. You, Christian, will find yourself in certain seasons of life right back where you started. 
I think in a society and even an environment like UCLA, the expectation is upward and onward progress, right? So if God is working in your life, then things are progressing, of course. Things are moving forward. Your resume is building. You, you know exactly what's next in life. But if you are his, you could have nothing to show for each season of life. Certainly not sheep and oxen and, and servants and donkeys or camels, but even no internship or no boyfriend or girlfriend or no high MCAT score or maybe not even a letter more on your resume. But if you are his in every season of life, you will have a testimony of how Yahweh has been faithful to you. Of how Yahweh has protected you. Of how Yahweh has provided for you in so many ways. Even when you were faithless. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For Yahweh is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray.